And then for our sermon this afternoon, we will be turning in the book of Acts and continuing with our Life of Paul series by looking at the work that Paul and Silas did in Thessalonica. We'll be reading from Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The last time we spoke about Paul, he had been thrown in a prison in Philippi, and by the awesome power of God, they had been released from prison by an earthquake. And then Paul was able to speak to the Roman jailer, and the Roman jailer asked a very good question, what do I need to do to be saved? And Paul was able to witness to that jailer, and the jailer was converted. But Paul had been asked to leave uh, Philippi. And so as Paul was leaving Philippi, perhaps he thought back on how he had been so dramatically converted in Damascus and how when he was converted, he was told that he was going to suffer because of Jesus' name. And he was told that he was going to be preaching to Jews and to Gentiles and possibly even to kings. And when he had been in Troas, thinking about where to go next, and he saw that vision. In that vision, he heard the man from Macedonia asking him to come to Macedonia. He must have thought to himself and perhaps prayed to God, God, Am I going to suffer in Macedonia as well? And he must have prayed to God, Am I going to be able to speak to Jews there? Am I going to be able to speak to Gentiles? What is my mission going to be there? In Philippi, Paul suffered greatly. He was beaten and thrown into prison. But also in Philippi, there were some wonderful conversions. And that's what we spoke about last time, the conversion of Lydia, the businesswoman. 
and of this slave girl who had been, uh, who had had an evil spirit within her, and of the Roman jailer. And so, leaving Philippi, Paul and his company, Silas and Timothy, leaving Luke behind in Philippi, traveled on a Roman road, and they traveled west about a hundred miles, taking about three days to get there, and ended up in Thessalonica. And this city was very different than Philippi. Philippi had been a Roman city, mostly Romans living in Philippi. Thessalonica was a city that was a Macedonian city with a very large population of Jews. There had been no Jews in Philippi. And so Paul did what he liked to do. He went to the synagogue, and Paul had credentials. He was a rabbi. And so today we're going to look at three aspects of his mission in Thessalonica. First of all, what did Paul teach in that synagogue? Secondly, how did Paul conduct himself when he was in Thessalonica? And then thirdly, how he was persecuted. And first of all, what did he teach? Paul, it says in our passage, he reasoned from the scriptures and he explained the scriptures. So when Paul was called up to speak as a visiting rabbi, as they were apt to do, Paul would come to the front of the synagogue and there would be a table and he would sit at the table and they would give him a scroll or he would ask for a scroll to read from. And the scroll was the holy writings. And so perhaps in this instance, Paul was asked to the front. He sat down at the table and asked for the scroll containing the Psalms. And he said, here's Psalm 2. And Paul would have read a few verses from Psalm 2. He would have read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And Paul would have looked up from the scroll and looked at the people who were there in the synagogue and he would have asked, who is the anointed? And in the synagogue, worship was a little different than what we have today. There was some give and take between the rabbi and the congregation. It was more of a teaching session. And the people would say, well, the anointed is the Messiah. It is the Christ who is to come. Okay, Paul says, let's continue. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is the psalmist talking about? The people would have said the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's going to be a king. And Paul would have looked down again. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And as he looked up and talked to the congregation, he would have explained again, who is this? The Messiah, the Son of God. And so the people had this idea of who the Messiah was. They saw the Messiah as a conquering king. And this psalm illustrated what they thought the Messiah was. And what is Paul doing here? Paul was using the scriptures to show that they had a common belief together. He and them, he was teaching them as a scholar, as a Jewish rabbi, someone who was very educated. But Paul had something else in mind. He was beginning to use logic to help these people understand the gospel. Paul had established that he agreed with the people that the Messiah would be a mighty conqueror, as was, as was described in these verses that we read in Psalm 2. But then Paul might have rolled up the scroll, and he would have said, give me the scroll that Isaiah wrote. And he would have taken out the scroll that Isaiah had written, And he might have read this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And when Paul looked up and looked at the congregation sitting there in the synagogue, he might have asked, who is Isaiah talking about? And the people may not have been so quick with an answer. And Paul would have looked down again, and he read this from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And Paul would have stood before that congregation and he would have said, who is Isaiah talking about? And that congregation might have looked back at him or venture to guess, and Paul would say, this is the Messiah. The Messiah is not only a conqueror, is not only a king, but he has to suffer, and he has to die. And what Paul is using, he's making a logical argument to establish a truth. And this is form of argument has been used since the beginning of time. Plato and Socrates talked about a methodology of teaching people, of using truths in order to make your point. And Paul was establishing that even though they had a common idea of who this Messiah was, 
But the Messiah was much, much more than what they thought the Messiah was. And he was expanding the definition of who the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to die. The Messiah had to be raised from the death before he could be raised up as the conqueror and the king. Isn't this why when we studied the scriptures, we need to look at all the scriptures? Because Paul looked at more than one or two scripture passages to explain who the Messiah was. And we look at the scriptures. Let's say we were going to, going to read about the holiness of God. And we read that famous passage in Isaiah where we read, holy, holy, holy is God. But then we say, where else does the Bible talk about holiness? We look back in Leviticus. We look in the teachings in the New Testament. We look in Revelation. And by looking at all of these passages together, we begin to get a picture of what God expects of us to live holy lives. Paul was expanding the Jewish concept of the Messiah at that time. He used a set of criteria that would identify the Messiah. He wanted to teach the people in that synagogue that their view of the Messiah was very limited. And so he was ready for the next step in this argument. And I like to think that it took two Sabbath days for Paul to go through the entire Bible and talk about all the passages that relate to the Messiah, to the Christ who was to come. And on the third Sabbath day, when he came and they asked him to speak some more, he said this, something like this. I know a man, Jesus, who is the Messiah. And this is why I believe he is the Messiah. And so Paul went back through all the prophecies that they had gone through together. And he said, the Messiah has to be uh, a son of David. And then he would have explained. Jesus had a mother who was a daughter of a long line from the line of David. And his father, Joseph, was also had a Davidic line. And he had to be born in Bethlehem. And he would have pointed to the passage that says he was born in Bethlehem. And he had to be born of a virgin. And he would have talked about how Jesus came to be born, how his mother was his true mother, but his father was God himself. And he would have talked about Jesus' persecution, and he would have talked about how Jesus was beaten and how he was humiliated. And he would have talked about how Jesus finally was crucified on the cross for the sins of his people, and that after he was buried, in three days, he rose from the dead. And then finally... Paul would have explained that Jesus appeared to many, many people after he had been, been come back, had risen from the death, and that he ascended into heaven, and that's where he is king. And that's where he has lordship over all. Jesus explained to the men 
on the way to Emmaus after his death, and they were walking with Jesus. And remember how Jesus, Jesus talked to these people and said that, uh, that he had to, to find my passage here. He, he would have said, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he would have explained that Jesus himself said he was the Christ. Jesus had said before that he had, had foretold that he was going to die. He said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew he was the Messiah. These are the kinds of things that Paul taught the Jews in that synagogue in Thessalonica. And so to the Jew in the pew, Paul's teachings were challenging. They were difficult. To us, they seem ordinary and common. To the Jew at that time and those sitting there, it was difficult. First, they had to change their view of who the Messiah was. He was not this earthly conqueror who was going to create a new Jewish nation in the land of Israel and create a holy kingdom, so to speak. He was a conqueror in a different way. He reconciled men from the sins that they had committed. But secondly, they had to believe that the Messiah had already come. And they had missed it. They didn't even know about him. And that he fulfilled the requirements of the Messiah and that his work was complete. People are the same today, aren't they? They have a fundamental belief in something. And I know that sometimes you hear about witnessing to a Jehovah Witness. And the Jehovah Witness are the people who don't really believe that Jesus is God. And so you try and find a passage such as John 10.30 where it says, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so they take out their Bible, you take out their, your Bible, and they really seem like they're the same Bibles. And then you read that passage and their Bible says something different. You say, oh, well, where did you get your Bible from? Well, it's from the original writings. Let's go to the original writings and let's say that you were like Pastor Harrison who could read the original writings. Okay, let's read the original writings. The original writing says in the Greek, I and the Father are one. And this Jehovah Witness would say, it doesn't say that. You have interpreted that incorrectly, translated it incorrectly. And in spite of you using the best translators, you will never convince that Jehovah Witness that your translation is correct because he just cannot accept that translation. They will reject you. And the point of this is that sometimes you can logically go through every truth. 
You can logically bring every argument, and you cannot save a person by logic alone. There's something else that has to happen. And Paul realized this. And even though Paul was a great, great speaker, he knew how to use the scriptures. He couldn't do it on his own. We read in Acts 17.4 that some Jews were convinced and a great many God-fearing Greeks. And then Luke uses a word that is a very interesting word. He uses a word that we read in our translation that they joined Paul and Silas. Some were persuaded and joined. And when we look at that word, the word join has a connotation to it that it was a privilege for these people to join with Paul and Silas. Joining implies that Paul's teaching was not the reason that they joined with Paul and Silas. It implies that God was an agent in that process. And he made the joining possible. It was kind of like if you join a club, you need to have someone help you join that club, perhaps give you a reference or whatever. God caused people to join with Paul and Silas. And have you considered that being a Christian is a privilege? This joining, it was a privilege to join with Paul and Silas. It's a privilege that God allowed you to see that you are a sinner. It is a privilege that God made you think that you needed to be reconciled to God. It is something that God created a desire for you to be reconciled with God and that God showed you the way of salvation through the scriptures and through the preaching of the word. As Christians, we are privileged to be a Christian. And we shouldn't forget that. And as privileged Christians, we want to be the ones who acquire, discuss with others the privileges that we have and invite others to come in and join with us as Christians. And sometimes we're so intense about trying to get other people to be Christians, it's because we are so privileged to be a Christian, we want others to share in that privilege. And those people who joined with Paul and Silas, they were privileged, and it was wonderful. But I think at that point, the Jews in that congregation said, forget it. We just don't get this. We don't understand it. Don't come back. And the book of Acts isn't very clear about how long Paul stayed after those three Sabbaths. But we know it must have been for some time because Paul conducted himself with a number of things after he left the synagogue. 
And we have two letters that were written that help us in our understanding. And so what did Paul do when he was in Thessalonica after he left the synagogue? Well, first of all, what he did is he continued to proclaim the gospel. We read in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, he preached in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He continued to preach, not in the synagogue, but whenever and wherever he came. But he did more than that. He continued to teach the people what it meant to please God. He writes this, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, which means he taught them this already, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing. Paul's writing this maybe six months later. He's saying, you are doing this. I taught you all this, that you do more and more. That's what Paul is telling them. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught them how to live. And so all of these things, he said, God hasn't called us for impurity, but for holiness. Those are the kinds of things that Paul taught them. Paul taught much more than just a way of salvation. Paul taught the people how to live in such a way that it pleased God. This didn't take two weeks. Paul must have been there for some time. And that's how we need to live. We don't only need to know a way of salvation. That's very nice. But we need to know what it is to live before God. We need to develop a lifestyle that shows what it is that we believe. And that's what Paul was very interested in especially with these Christians at this time in this town. And so he was in Thessalonians long enough to teach these disciples what it meant to live as a Christian, especially since many of them were not only converted because they were God-fearing Greeks, but they were converted directly from paganism. And we read about that in Thessalonians. Paul was there long enough that the Philippians, who he had been in previously, sent him a gift and said, let's help you in your ministry over there. And the Philippians sent him gifts twice so that he could spend time in ministry. But there was one other thing that Paul did when he was there. He worked. He worked to support himself and his ministry team. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then he wrote another time, he said, we get the impression that the people in Thessalonica were somewhat of goof-offs. 
that they didn't work very hard. Because hear what Paul said. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. And so the question is, why did Paul have to work here in Thessalonica? Paul was willing to suffer from fatigue and hardship. He worked night and day in order to have the means to preach the gospel. And Paul didn't only minister to people's souls, he ministered to their physical well-being, and he was able to show them what it meant to work. You might think, are you willing to do whatever it takes to nourish your soul by making sure that your labor is honoring to God. And Paul demonstrated that Christians are to be laborers, physical labor, actively doing what is needed in order to sustain themselves. Paul writes further, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And he isn't talking about their work in ministry. He's talking about their work, the work that they do to support themselves. He also says, you are to aspire to, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Talk about the Puritan work ethic. Paul is promoting the need for a Christian to support themselves and to work and live a life that shows that they love their Lord. I don't think Paul and silence were like making a problem in Thessalonica, but they were noticed. And we read that they became the target of persecution. The Jews became jealous of Paul and Silas. And perhaps they were jealous because they had lost a bunch of these Gentile God-fearers that had come to their synagogue and had worshipped with them every Sabbath day. And now we're going to worship with Paul and Silas and his company. Or maybe they were jealous because, because the good lifestyle that Paul was teaching was different than their lifestyle. Maybe their work was shoddy. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were difficult people to deal with. And Paul and Silas were just such good examples. Or perhaps they were just incapable of trying to logically refute Paul's teaching. Isn't that just like today sometimes? Where a good, hardworking person 
who does the right thing, who wants to tell the truth, doesn't want to be dishonest, is the one who gets persecuted, the one who gets disdained, the one who is verbally abused and ridiculed. And that's what happened to Paul and to Silas, and it can happen today. It's the way of the world. And these Jews were enemies of Jesus Christ. And they showed it in a very clear way. We read in the Bible, they took wicked men of the rabble, and you can get an idea, the King James Version said certain lewd followers of the baser sort, even worse sounding, the NIV, which is kind of your nicer way of saying things, they said they were bad characters. We know that these people were not the best people in the world. And in some ways, it's an honor if you are a Christian, if the worst possible person comes and accuses you of atrocities. Because it just shows where it's coming from. And you'll say, okay, if they think I'm good, I must be good. Because they are the worst people that can possibly be out there. And when these evil men couldn't find Paul and Silas in their normal place of employment, Jason's house, they just dragged Jason, their landlord, to the court. Said, Jason, he has these people in his house that shouldn't be here. And Luke writes in such a way to show the irony of this situation. The mob, in the uproar, accuses Paul and Silas of causing an uproar, and Paul and Silas weren't even there. They were missing. Paul and Silas were probably not working that day in the house or where they might have been somewhere on ministry. But the second accusation that they made is partially true. They were teaching about another king, Jesus. And again, it's ironic that the Jews who instigated this mob knew how to distinguish between God in heaven and the ruler who was in Rome. They knew the difference, and they knew how to live in that situation. Just as Paul was teaching, God is in heaven, Jesus Christ is in heaven today, and we live in the Roman Empire. We're under authority. And so needless to say, there is nothing in the doctrine of Christ that would cause us to have an insurrection against our rulers, unless, of course, they are denying some of our rights as Christians to be Christians and to worship together. And then at those times, we do disobey. But the city authorities were disturbed. They weren't disturbed because Paul and Silas were problems. Paul and Silas were not the problem. They were disturbed because of the emperor, Caesar Claudius. Caesar Claudius ruled the empire with an iron hand. And if he heard that a certain town or a certain area had had a small riot, or there was some disturbance, or there was some problem, Claudius took care of it, and he wasn't nice about it. He would have come in and replaced all those city officials in a flash. Those city officials were afraid 
of Claudius. And so they quickly devised a plan to alleviate the situation. They said, Paul and Silas, you have to leave. Jason, you're going to put up money that you're going to keep the peace. You're not going to keep these people. And so Paul and Silas had to leave. And so they respected the authorities. Paul and Silas went on their way. They did it for the Christians that were in town. And what happened after they left? They suffered hardship and persecution. Paul writes about it in his letter. But we read something very wonderful in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Paul had sent Timothy about six months later to Thessalonica and asked Timothy to work there for a while and then come back and give a report. And here's what he heard. He said that now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news. And what was the good news? Of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. This church survived. This church grew. They kept the faith. They showed love for one another. Isn't that wonderful news? This is something that we should aspire to. In spite of persecution, in, in spite of difficulty, in spite of all the things that we go through as a church body, is it, wouldn't it be nice if we were known for our faith, and I think we are, and known for our love one to another, and we think we do. And we would pray that God would help us, even, even in our church life, just as he helped this church that was under persecution and had to release Paul and Silas to another place. That's where we are today. We would like to aspire to be like the Thessalonian church.